Hello, and welcome back to the Five Day Reading Plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward, and I will be your host today to walk us through some of the highlights of this past week's readings. Always remember, you can download a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast, and you can also find it at fivedaybiblereading.com. Well, week 35 this week we're in, and uh, that includes Isaiah 23 through 35. 2 Chronicles 28, 2 Kings 17, Psalms 65 and 66, and 1 Corinthians 3 through 7. It is helpful that this reading plan has us in 2 Chronicles 28 and shows us the utter wickedness of King Ahaz. We read a similar account a couple of weeks ago in 2 Kings 16, but just in case we've forgotten part of that era in which Isaiah writes, we were reminded once again this week just how dark things had gotten. You've got a man following the pagan custom of burning his own babies. Horrible, just horrible. Isaiah 25 and 26, though, are two high points in the book so far. I sometimes quote Isaiah 25, 7 through 10 at funerals, times where it appears that death has prevailed and hope is lost. But then there are these glorious promises of a future day when death, Isaiah writes, will be swallowed up or destroyed forever. The Lord will wipe away every tear, also quoted in Revelation 21. The faithful will say, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. And then we see a future joy and celebration as we see in chapter 26 and also later in chapters 33 and 35. In 25 verse 9 and 26 verse 8, the verb wait stood out to me. We have waited for him and he has saved us. We have waited for him. Lord, we wait for you in the path of your judgments. Our desire is for your name and renown. In the prophets, you will often see a waiting remnant among the rebellious, a small group of people who continue to trust the Lord when it seems like the most ridiculous choice around, when they are drowned out by the voices around them heading toward a theological cliff. Such small bands of believers, though, remain patient. They trust that God will make things right. They refuse to go the way of the majority. They actively wait for the fruition of their hope, the goodness of God toward those who hold fast to him. You may feel like that remnant sometimes, especially when you witness even people who are in the church living like the rest of the world. Waiting is not easy. It is hard, but it is good and it is right. And those who wait will be vindicated. This is a message we will see time and time again. Speaking of vindication, you may want to go back and mark the term that day, and that's in 2421, 25-9, 26-1, 27-1, and 12, 28-5, 30-23, and 26, and 31, verse 6. As you read chapter 30, did you notice the sudden speed bump of verse 18? The verses leading up to it reveal descriptions of a rebellious and irreverent people who do their own thing and demand prophets who will tell them what they want to hear. On such people, the Lord pronounces a just verdict. But then comes verse 18, where it says, The Lord waits. He waits to show mercy. He rises up to show compassion. All who wait for him are happy, it says. So again, we see in the prophets a God who is both just and merciful, one who will take the rebels to task, yet one who also has a deeper longing, one that yearns to show compassion. 
If God were like one of us, all the scorn that he has endured might lead him to be bitter, cynical, and unforgiving. Or as Martin Luther once said, if I were God, I would have kicked the vile, wretched world to pieces long ago. But Isaiah does not present such a picture of God to us because God is not us. Isaiah shows us both God's severe indignation and his soft heart. The two are not contradictory. They are complementary. The utter evil that God has seen in generation and generation after generation has not embittered him. He has not become like we would become if we had seen the betrayal he has seen. Instead, he remains one who longs to show mercy. Something in the divine nature just can't let go of that. Psalm 65 is not just a psalm proclaiming how the Lord provides for our every need, but it's a nice synopsis of the gospel. Notice this in verse 3, for example, our iniquities or my iniquities overwhelm me. That, That sounds almost like the New Testament quote, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then he says, only you can atone for our rebellions. What's the gospel say? Christ is our only hope. Our our good works are but fig leaves. God must provide a satisfying sacrifice as he has done so, and he has done so in Christ. Verse 9, you visit the earth and you water it abundantly. Jesus calls himself the living water, and after we come to Christ, he nourishes our souls. He grows us up. He cares for us as we tap into this living water. In Psalm 66, notice how the psalmist testifies as to God's work in his life. Come and listen, all who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for me. God has listened when I cried out. He has paid attention to my prayer. I was convicted personally recently, having prayed for something and seeing it come to pass. I was bothered by the fact that afterwards I had forgotten to thank God after the prayer was answered. I I forgot to acknowledge him once things were right again. And I neglected to tell others how my change in circumstances had to be chalked up to God's listening ear and strong hand. Sometimes the Psalms not only remind us to cry out to God when we are in need, but to praise Him both privately and publicly when He does indeed come to our rescue. You see, if you're like me, you're a forgetter. The Psalms remind me, though, to be a rememberer. In 1 Corinthians 3, in our New Testament reading, Paul continues discussing a war going on in the church in Corinth, division between those who are fans of Apollos and those who are fans of Paul. Now, there was no personal animosity or rivalry between these two gifted men, as far as we know, but a conflict had begun to fester in the church of Corinth over who the better man was. It is evident in both letters to the Corinthians that Paul was not the most gifted speaker, by the way. Others were far more talented and gifted in that area, but Paul was no less called nor gifted in other ways. Apollos, on the other hand, I get the impression he was easy to listen to. He was well-spoken. He was easy to follow. His skills garnered a sizable fan base, and for good reason. And so, in Corinth, A war breaks out between each of the fan bases of Paul or Apollos, if you will. But Paul reminds this church in chapter 3 that only one man is the foundation of it all. And that man is not Apollos. That man is not Paul. That man is Christ. What then is Apollos? What is Paul then, he asks. And he says, servants. One plants, one waters, Paul will say, but if there is any growth in the church of Corinth, it comes from the one who makes seeds sprout and plants grow. 
A servant can't move a heart, just like a farmer can't make a seed sprout. We are merely cultivators. God is the one who does the magic, if you will. But that Paul and Apollos are merely servants does not mean that their work will go unrewarded. And that's where the end of chapter 3 tells us one day the quality of everyone's work for the gospel will be tested and then rewarded by God. And it will not be rooted in how admired we were, but by the just judgment of God, who will reward us not by the size of our fan bases, but by our faithfulness to the mission he has called us to. And I hope that encourages you as much as it encourages me. That God is not going to judge us by our applause meters or by how popular we were with people, though we may be. He's going to judge us by our faithfulness to what he has called us to. So Paul's goal, as chapter 4 opens, is to be found faithful by God. Through the years, one discipline I am trying to learn is the refusal to elevate talent or giftedness over content. If I follow a teacher simply because they're easy to listen to, I can be more easily vulnerable to false teachers and deceptive doctrines. And it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not that more talented speakers are always false teachers, but we must train our minds to home in on content above all things. And it is my hope that the Lord will give us both gifted and sound teachers. But if we have to choose between the two, may we choose sound doctrine over talent any day. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians shows us an instance that may be all too common today, elevating grace to such an extent that it excuses sin rather than dealing with it. It's pretty brutal here. There's a man in the Corinthian church having sexual relations with his stepmother, and the church is doing nothing about it. In fact, they might have cried out, well, let's just show grace here. But Paul chides their error here and tells them how they should handle this situation, not only for the good of the church, but ultimately for the good of this man. If you haven't already done so, you are sure to run into professing Christians who think that God's grace is a license to act selfishly. This is foreign, though, to a biblical view of Christianity. We are called to be holy and self-controlled, not indulgent. We are called to model God's purity to a lost world, not to abuse God's grace and fit into that lost world. So Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5 may sound harsh, but if we have a proper understanding of what God's people are meant to be, they are perfectly appropriate. Because unrepentant sin does great, lasting, and deep damage to the reputation of God and to the state of his people. Quick note on this, note how many times Paul uses the term sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6. I counted eight times. Jesus uses the term at least five times in the Gospels. I wonder if the sexual revolution, keeping this in mind, has convinced too many Christians that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter to God, as long as love is involved. This idea, though prevalent today, cannot be found in our Bibles. God does care about what we do with our bodies. He does care about the images we allow into our minds. True love begins in a heart submitted to our good God who cares about us and wants the very best for us. And incidentally, God does give us sex as a beautiful gift to both husband and wife, as we see in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, where it's obvious that this is a gift not just to be tolerated, but celebrated in the right context. 
And one kind of final note, if you are single and serving the Lord, I hope that parts of 1 Corinthians 7 were comforting to you as you've read. Though most of us adults marry when when we are of age, some do not, and some choose not to marry at all. Is this wrong? Is, Is this detrimental to the faith? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul would say, absolutely not. In fact, he writes, singleness can be a great gift to those who wish to serve Christ and to those who are in the body of Christ. So let us be careful about assuming an adult is incomplete, if you will, if if they are unmarried. Single adults are a tremendous gift to the body of Christ, not a liability. So if you happen to be listening today and you're single, I, I hope you know this as we close out. You are extremely valuable to God and his gospel mission. If you are in Christ, you are already complete. You lack nothing in your service to him. If you desire a spouse, I pray that the Lord will deliver just the right one at just the right time. In the meantime, though, just remember that you are valuable to the kingdom of God, just as Paul was, and you are valuable to his cause. Well, next week, we will pick up 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, 2 Kings 18 through 20. We'll read about Hezekiah there. And in Psalms, we'll read Psalm 67, Psalm 123. We will continue in Isaiah chapters 36 through 44. And in 1 Corinthians, we'll get about three quarters of the way through the book as we read verses 8 through 12. I'll see you next week. I hope you have a great week. And thank you for listening to the 5-Day Reading Plan Podcast. (music) 